Hey guys, I'm Caleb Giddings. And I'm Keith Finch. And you are watching or listening to Gun Day Brunch here on probably on YouTube, but also possibly on Spotify and still not on Apple Podcasts. Although, Keith, I do have good news. Uh, we finally have a solution for Apple Podcasts. So by this time next week, all of our back catalog should be back up on, should be up on Apple and people should be able to listen to it on their iDevices. So thank God for that. Thank God for technology when it works. When it works. And <laughs> I'm going to do this one this week. Uh, we are brought to you guys by Aero Precision, DeSantis Holsters, and Rocky Brass. Look at that. Three for Nailed three. Nailed it. Yes. You nailed it. Did we, we didn't get another DeSantis sponsor. Gunhide, by the way, DeSantis Gunhide. Frick. That was close enough. <laughs> Everybody knows if I say DeSantis who I'm talking about, unless I'm talking about the governor of Florida. It's is he related? There's also to the another random DeSantis like manufacturing group. I forget what they do, but it's machining something. Because when hmm. you just type DeSantis, you go to them. But DeSantis Gunhide gets you our actual sponsor. They make holsters. They do make holsters. All right, so we have uh, hot topics tonight, and I'm not talking about crappy clothes for teenage goth kids. Are are there still goth kids? Is that a thing that? They do anymore. I, think I, I don't. I think they're goth people now. I don't know if they're well, kids anymore. Fair enough. So, but like goth I, folk. When we were youths, which we neither of us are youths anymore, they were definitely <laughs> goth teens. Uh, and then yes. they grew up to become Jack Clemens and go to Ren Fairs. Um, <laughs> they uh, They in fact did. That is an accurate <laughs> summation of the history of goth. <laughs> from hot topic to red fair i mean that's that's pretty accurate actually all right we, we we must cease this tomfoolery though because we do actually have some serious stuff to discuss and we're going to start with the most punchable face in the history of senate hearings the president's nominee for the director of the atf david chipman dave chipman has the most value brand dave belushi face that just Oh my God! <laughs> that... <laughs> That's hey, yeah. Kids, I just... You want to you want to see some Dave Belushi? No, we have Dave Belushi at home. I mean, I I, I I I very much don't believe in disparaging people based on their appearances and stuff like that. But I was watching the confirmation hearings, and I I I have I don't think I've ever actually said this about a person, but he genuinely has like like a punchable face and i figured out why he is became the person that he was because i would bet you guys a million dollars he was bullied all the way all the way up through college then he became a federal agent killed some kids at waco and that allegedly and then allegedly allegedly, allegedly that's not him though it looks an awful lot like a younger version of him in that photo, posing in front of the burned down compound full of corpses. So, yeah, that was uh, so, and then became a gun control advocate because, you know, gun control advocates, they, 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 yeah, he's got the type. Let's just say he's the type. We're, working for the Gifford Center definitely fills me with confidence and just absolute enthusiasm that he will approach gun policy with the ATF in a very neutral and very fair demeanor i'm just filled with confidence in the fact that he shielded for the gifford center for the last few years so just instead of aren't you inst yo yeah instead of us comparing his appearance to you know rodents or whatever we were doing let's actually talk about his track record and why this is a bad nomination 
And, you know, I don't know when the Senate's going to actually hold their vote. Uh, hopefully by the time this airs in a couple of days, they will have voted and been like, F that guy. Probably not because the federal government's taking tomorrow off and Monday off. So the vote probably hasn't happened yet when you listen to this. Um, if it hasn't, contact your senators, tell them to vote no on David Chipman. And here's why. So I'll, I'll go through his his government background, and then you can talk about his post-government service background, all right? So as a federal agent, he worked for the ATF, and he was involved in Waco. Now, regardless of how you feel about the Branch Davidians or what they were doing or anything like that, I feel like we can all agree that burning kids to death is probably not a winning solution, right? I don't feel like I'm on like a shaky tree limb here saying that people who were associated with the Waco massacre should probably not get to hold leadership positions in the federal government. So that's strike one. Strike two, and one that's actually a far bigger strike for me as a firearms advocate, as an industry professional, is that David Chipman was in a senior leadership position at the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms during the Gunwalker scandal, which most of you know by the name Fast and Furious, which most of you also probably know, directly resulted in the death of a federal agent, Brian Terry, and the deaths of an estimated hundreds of Mexican citizens with guns that the ATF intentionally sent into Mexico to get to the cartels so that they could arrest them for having the guns. Like that was gun yes, that, and this this crazy thing, this this crazy setup is we, we hear all the time, oh, we need to stop straw purchasing and, and trafficking weapons and, and all this on and on. We need to stop all this. Fast and Furious was literally them allowing this to happen, telling the gun dealers involved, no, it's okay. Let it happen. We'll track them down. We promise. Yeah. And, so and they well, did. To, to explain Gunwalker in a way for like the average person. So what happened was during the Gunwalker scandal, which again, David Chipman was in a senior position of leadership at the ATF. We, I, it's impossible to know what he knew or didn't know or the level of involvement that he had, but you are everyone he was knew. directly in the supervisory chain of these events. Yeah, it's like it was field agents involved in Gunwalker, their boss is David Chipman. So, you know, you can make your own conclusions about how much he knew or didn't know. But so here's how this worked. So the gun dealers knew that cartel people were using cutouts and straw purchases to get weapons to send back over the border into Mexico. They would do what they were supposed to do and report these attempted straw purchases, deny the purchase, say, I'm not comfortable making this sale, get the hell out of my store, and reported that to the ATF. Someone at the ATF got the brilliant idea that they could let these sales go through, let the cartel get access to these guns, and then track these guns and use them to indict the cartel members for federal crimes. The problem with this, if you heard me say that out loud and thought to yourself, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, congratulations, you're a sensible human being. Because the minute those guns left the United States, they fucking disappeared into Mexico. Just, and then they started turning up. 
and they turned up at crime scenes with dead Mexican citizens. They turned up at crime scenes with a dead federal agent. All of these guns got connected to these crimes. And fun fact, they still haven't recovered all of the guns from Gunwalker. We don't know where those guns are. So that was- Central America. Yeah. Who knows? Killing people (laughs) right now. And they're not killing people because of some sort of failure of our gun laws in America, they are killing people directly because of willful actions taken by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. So on those two criteria alone, David Chipman is not qualified to be the director of this agency. End, stop, conversations, over. However, when he got out of the ATF, what did he do for a living? Oh, he joined the completely nonpartisan and in no way controversial or biased Giffords Law Center for firearms control, which are allied with such other peers of non-biased, non-partisan politics, such as Moms Demand Action and, oh, Mayors, Mayors. <laughs> um, Moms Demand mayors Action for Community is my Safety. favorite name for and then, gun control group. And then uh, the, uh, the blue, all, all the Bloomberg uh, yeah. citizens. Every Town groups. for Gun Safety. Every Town for Gun Safety, that's it. And, um, so yeah, he got directly into political advocacy for gun control. Like you cannot be a bigger shill for gun control than jumping in with Gifford, Giffords and Every Town and Moms Demand Action and that whole crowd who are willing to lie at the drop of the hat about events, about laws. They're willing to obfuscate anything in order to make firearms sound more terrifying than they actually are. They have never met a piece of information that they couldn't turn into a terrifying talking point to someone who doesn't have a clue. And they, they is... do it, they, they do it brilliantly. So now we have a known paid advocate of the Gifford Center. Pay, he was their senior policy advisor, their senior policy advisor on guns. And so if you've looked at any of the Giffords information that they put out over the last several years and looked at what they were championing and where their information was backed from, it's bunk, it's bogus, it's completely and utter, it, it, it is without ethical or moral merit, it, and it's without scholarly merit. The information is bogus. So this guy was the senior advisor on all these decisions, on everything Giffords was pushing forward for the last few years. And now he is looking at going into that law enforcement position again. That or that he's going, he's going back into law enforcement where he is supposed to be a neutral party. Right. So, and for people who don't understand, the ATF uh, is the regulatory agency for the firearms industry. So they're responsible for uh, all of that, for enforcing and also interpreting all of the laws that govern the sale, manufacture, possession, transfer, everything around firearms and ammunition. Um, It would be like, and I'm trying to think of, it, it would be like putting the chairman of Mothers Against Drunk Driving. So also fun fact, the ATF doesn't really do anything with alcohol anymore. There's a different agency that does that. And I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but it would be like putting the chairwoman of chair, yeah, chairwoman of Mothers Against Drunk Driving in charge of that agency. And, or I don't know, putting the head of Purdue Pharma, there, here's a good one, putting the head of Purdue Pharma in charge of the FDA. It, it's such, and to be perfectly clear, 
I would be opposed to this as a conflict of interest if they were nominating Chris Cox, the former mm-hmm. head of the NRA Institute for Legislative Action, to run the ATF, because there is a clear conflict of interest. If it's Chris Cox or if it's this David Chipman guy, their, his existence as a gun control advocate is a conflict of interest in what is supposed to be a agnostic regulatory and law enforcement agency. Yeah, he's not supposed to hold a strong opinion one way or another. And being a senior policy advisor for the Gifford Center completely wipes away any neutrality that we can expect out of him. We can expect him to take the policy positions of his former employer. Right. And like, look, I don't live in fantasy land where I think that... um, senior government officials don't have strong policy leaning one way or the other. However, they generally don't work for the uh, work directly for a lobbying group in that interest sector before they get nominated for a cabinet level position. Normally how this goes is they get the, yeah, no, hundred percent. It's usually after. Yeah. If his career had progressed so that he'd become the head of the ATF then retired from the ATF and gone to work for Giffords after being the director of the ATF, that would actually be a fairly- Or flip it around. And he went to work for like the the ILA or the NPC. Yeah, that would be a fairly normal government scumbag to lobbyist trajectory. Like that, that happens all the time. What you don't normally see is scumbag lobbyist to government for good reason, because again, mm-hmm. it's a monster conflict of interest. Exactly. So what we're looking at is he's disqualified on two major fronts. And so we're, we're looking at the partisan vote instead. He, he's the administration's pick. He's the administration's guy. And therefore, if the administration wants to shoehorn him in and manages to spend the political capital and get all the votes, he might get confirmed. However, the flip side of it is you're going to have to burn a lot to get him in because he's such a politically divisive guy. Because you can't claim that he's neutral. You can the only thing you can claim, the only thing you can claim about uh, Chipman is that he has 25 years experience already in the ATF. That is a true claim. But with his participation in the Waco massacre, and then his direct supervisory role with Fast and Furious, you have two very suspect things that you would not want on the resume of your ATF director. Like, ooh, probably not a good look here, guys. And then you have the equally disqualifying fact that this person is not a neutral. He can't play a neutral. He can't say, well, this is just my personal opinion. It has nothing to do with my professional background and my professional neutrality because it, it's been his professional background. It's part mm-hmm. of his resume. Like, it, I'll, I'll be like, you, you wouldn't want me or you wouldn't want you running the ATF and trying to be a neutral party, a completely neutral party. No. We're not. And our, our jobs, our, our jobs are, are part of this side of the industry. So we, we're not law enforcement neutral individuals. No. Uh, we're very clearly pro-gun. But Chipman is as anti-gun as we are pro-gun. And you want him running this neutral regulatory body. I want the most neutral, like, bare bones, 
and boring man, I can put it, the head of the ATF, who's just going to look at and be like, all right, how do we what make does the law work? say? Yeah, exactly. What does the how law do say? These how do we make work? these rules work, guys? Because we the the most telling thing that I kept seeing over and over and over again today from that interview was like define assault weapon, Mr. Chipman. And instead of saying the federal government does not hold a definition for assault weapons, certain states have, that's their prerogative, but there's no federal definition of assault weapon, and I'm not going to make one up. You know, they kept on saying, well, they finally got him to say, like, well, you know, I think semi-automatics that are magazine fed would, would qualify as assault weapons, and I want to put them all on the NFA. I don't right. want the head of the ATF saying, well, I want to put them on the NFA. I want the head of the ATF saying, this is the purview of Congress, and Congress needs to make a decision. This is not yeah. my job. Which he did say initially, but it was very much like, well, they'd be whatever Congress defines them to be. And it's like, yeah. hey, you're going to be the one who's responsible for enforcing this decision. You need to like have a way better answer than that, which he did not, and eventually got nope. around to the, I want to put all assault weapons on the National Firearms Act, which uh, obviously we are not down with. Don't like that. Not into it. No, Not hard cool. pass, hard pass. Bad move. So for pro-gun people, here's what you can do to fight this nomination. Obviously, the vote's not happening today. It's uh, today, by the way, for people listening to this, we record these before we release them. It's Thursday, the 27th. Tomorrow is the government's not going to do anything on the Friday before a holiday. Like, let's just be real, guys. Uh, then they're definitely not going to do anything on Memorial Day. So this is going to drop on Sunday. When you hear this on Memorial Day and on Tuesday, contact your senators and urge them to oppose uh, Mr. Chipman's nomination. Urge them to oppose it on the grounds that he is unqualified on the grounds of his advocacy uh, as a gun control advocate specifically, because you know he did deny in the hearing that that was him at Waco in the picture, but you know whatever. Specifically, didn't. Uh, that he is unqualified to act as a, in a neutral law enforcement and regulatory capacity based on his job positions, and that it is a massive conflict of interest. And do this regardless of what state you live in, but especially do this if you live in West Virginia, Wyoming. Wait, is he in Wyoming? I always frick that guy up. Uh, whatever state John Tester is the senator from, let's look. John Tester. He is from Montana. All right, Montana. refresh. West Virginia, Montana, and Arizona. These three states have so much power in these contentious Senate hearings because you have Joe Manchin in West Virginia, who is a like actually a moderate Democrat. Uh, and then you have John Tester in Montana, who is a relatively moderate Democrat. And you have Kristen Sinema in Arizona, who is a relatively moderate Democrat. If you live in one of those three states, please, pretty, pretty, please go on, find your senator's actual email addresses, you know, cinema at senate.gov or whatever, and email her and email John Tester and email Joe Manchin and be like, hey, please vote against this guy because he's not qualified. All right. Don't, you know, do crazy conspiracies. That's our purview here to yell about stuff. You notice that when, that when I'm talking about this, now I'm being deadly serious. It is that it is very important that we oppose this nomination with everything that we have. All right, this guy is. If you worked for a, if you worked for a cell phone company, you wouldn't want the head of the FTC to be someone who thinks that cell phones give you brain cancer, 
And this is exactly the same as that. So this is a very, this is a, a hugely important issue. It's, it's very important, guys. And when you write in, when you go to this, your, your senator website, you can go to senate.gov, look up your senators and send them emails through the senate.gov website. Be concise, be professional, and point out the conflict of interest and that you are not comfortable as their constituents. You are not comfortable with Dave Chipman being head of the ATF because he clearly has a bias. He has a yeah. professionally ingrained bias because of his work background. You would, again, you would not want someone who is so deeply involved, either pro or against any, any regulatory, you, you would not want them being a, a regular of any industry, firearms especially. So again, yeah. right in. And real quick, before we switch to our next topic, but, uh, speaking of regulations, I do want to point out that the proposed... Um, 80% lowers rule that we talked about is finally posted on regulations.gov for you to comment on. When the last episode aired, it wasn't posted yet. It's finally been posted. They took their sweet time getting that one up. So you can go to regulations.gov, search for uh, ATF. Oh, we'll be fine, and that'll pop it up, and that should get you. And go leave a comment on that. Tell the ATF that it's unbelievably vague, makes no sense, and that's honestly probably good enough. That, that's we enough. It's, it's vague and it makes no sense. This should be a hard and fast rule that anybody can read and follow. If these are yep. directions you can read and follow and you literally have to ask mother may I to the ATF for any single thing that might be, might not be a receiver, might be, might not be a frame, then it's too vague a rule. It, it needs to be black and white on ink that this is what it is. If they can't do that, then they can't put this rule down. Yep. All right, now speaking now to change subjects because we do need to get through this one as well. Uh, everyone is talking about constitutional carry, and I do mean everyone. Like you're, they've got things on CNN about it. They've got you know, uh, it's op eds popping up everywhere. I wrote one for U.S. Law Shield a while ago, which was I thought pretty good. Um, but the reason why everyone's talking about constitutional carry is because, and I apologize if you don't live in one of these four states, but in this country. If something happens in New York, California, Texas, or Florida, it has national it news potential because of the populations of those states, because of their, you know, cultural influence and blah, blah, blah. And what's going on in Texas? Texas is on the verge of passing their permitless, their constitutional carry. And Texas being second only to California in size, that's national level news. There are a few other states around, like Michigan and I think Pennsylvania, if I recall correctly. There are a couple of them that are putting forward uh, constitutional carry bills right now. But Michigan's 9 million people. Texas is 34. Yeah. Texas there's more people, is big news. There's more people in Texas than there are in Canada. So, like, it, it's, you know, everyone jokes about how Texas could be its own country. Yeah, it could be. It's bigger yeah, than a lot could. of countries. Um, the, so... To understand constitutional carry, guys, it is constitutional carry is a catch all term for what we used to call Vermont carry, because you and I both remember when Vermont was the only state that Vermont had it. was it. Yeah. So it is the idea that you, the constant, it is the uh, idea that the Constitution is your permit to carry a concealed firearm, hence the name constitutional carry. A more accurate legal term for it would probably be permitless carry where you do not need, please don't roast me, 
no free man needs a permit, blah, 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 where you do not need a permit from your state to carry a firearm concealed without violating the law. So essentially requirements for carry are you are a citizen of said state or resident of said state and you are legally permitted to own a firearm. Those are your requirements to carry. Permitless carry other than that. And that's a good point because that actually does address one of the questions that people have about permitless carry is, does this mean just anyone can carry a gun? No, it has never meant that. In none of the states that have passed constitutional or permitless carry has it meant that just anybody can throw a gun under their jacket and go about their day. All of the states that have some form of this, the law states that you must be first and foremost legally allowed to own the gun that you're carrying. Some of the states, interestingly, uh, state that it has to follow the federal guidelines for ownership. So you have to be at least 21. You have to be able to pat, you have to legally be able to own the gun and you know all of that stuff. Some of the states it's 18, but regardless, and I'm, I'll say this very, very clearly, and I'll probably repeat this, it's still illegal for felons to carry guns, even in permitless carry states, guys. Nothing about this changes this. Permitless carry doesn't change where it's legal to carry a gun either, unless the state law amends that. So for example, in Texas, it's illegal to carry into bars. It's still going to be illegal to carry into bars, even if they pass constitutional carry. You're just not going to need to get the state permit. And all these states who have passed it are still keeping their permit system in place Mm -hmm. because We do not have any form of structured national reciprocity at this point. So permitting is still there. All these states' permitting systems are going to remain intact for that reciprocity for crossing state lines. So it's not like a CPL or a CCW or whatever the state vernacular is for your license is becoming really any less useful if your state passes permitless carry. It's just essentially taking a behavior that's already widely spread in your state for illegal gun owners. And, t- and removing one more step for legal gun owners to do it. Yeah, it's removing, a, it's removing a legal barrier and a government revenue generating process, which will still exist. And I now this is something I don't actually know, and I'm sure someone will correct me in the comments, but I don't know in Texas if your permit waives your NICS check or not, if you have a carry permit. Um, but I know in some states that have passed constitutional carry, they've kept their permit system in place. One, yes, for reciprocity benefits, and two, because their permit acts as a sidestep around the NICS check. So not a sidestep. That sounds terrible. It just means that hey, I went through a background it, it check. Acts to get the in lieu of the, it acts in lieu of the NICS check. I think it's currently yeah. box 29 on the 4473 form. I'd have to look it up. Um, I think box 29 on the 4473 form is if you have a valid uh, NICS alternative, enter it here on the 4473. You put it in, you put in your permit number, it references, that's your background check because you are licensed. Um, Michigan did have that. Michigan's status with NICS got revoked. So Michigan no longer has that. Um, But it, it, it is something, it's still part of the federal process that there are ways to skip the NICS process, which is very convenient because NICS only works like 75% of the time. It's instant, except when it isn't. Fun fact for uh, people who haven't lived in Florida, Florida does not use NICS. Florida uses their own database called the the FDLE database. And I will tell you this, it made me yearn 
for the speed, swiftness, and efficiency of Nick's. That's how bad it was when I was running a gun shop down there. Um, so, and back to the constitutional carry thing, one of the things people also don't understand is constitutional carry states don't, uh, don't automatically have uh, constitutional carry reciprocity if you're an out-of-state resident. Uh, I believe, I just did the article most, on this. Most don't actually. Yeah, uh, several of them don't. And you can go look this up for your, you guys can go look this up for yourselves, but many of them don't have it where even you, where the requirement is you must be a resident of that state to be able to carry without a permit in that state. So it's not like these are, you know, completely removing the need for concealed carry permits. Rather, as Keith said, they're removing a barrier to entry for people who want to carry a gun for personal protection. And that's what a carry permit is. It's a barrier to entry. It is. It's, it's, I, I say this in every concealed carry class that I teach personally. It, the fact is you are signing a waiver. You're, you're clicking on yes to agree to the, the terms and conditions uh, of, the, of the state where you are residing. You're, you're agreeing to their terms and conditions that basically if you screw up while carrying the gun, it's not their fault. They're removing yeah. liability from themselves. And so you can say, oh, well, it's unconstitutional. It's an infringement of my rights. Those things are true. But what the state more than anything else is doing, because it's because even though it generates them revenue, it's not a ton of revenue compared to other tax sources. But what it's doing more than anything is like, all right, you paid us your fee and you took the class and you signed on the dotted line. You have agreed to the terms and conditions of concealed carry. Um, it's on you if you screw up. We 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 wave our we wave our our magic wand and we wash our hands of anything that you did because you signed on the dotted line you got the license uh, that's all on you and constitutional carry states are essentially going and acknowledging that well it was already all on you like if you commit a crime while carrying a gun even if you were carrying the gun legally you, you committed the crime while carrying a gun even though previous to the crime being committed you were carrying the gun legally right like, you oops you oops. We didn't need yeah. to add an extra layer of oops. So uh, do you want to address the, uh, for some reason, this is an objection that springs up to it a lot, is there are certain law enforcement, and I'm doing air quotes around law enforcement groups, because I've never met a cop who was against constitutional carry, because the guys who are out there actually working in the streets know that the scumbags are going to carry guns regardless of whether or not mm -hmm. they have a permit. Like they don't, like the only function that, a carry permit performs for a street cop is it maybe tells you that this person's not a bad person but in i've never it's met a cop who was like yeah i've never met a cop who was so who was against constitutional carry because they were were a, a an actual street cop but you have these law enforcement organizations who are like who repeat this line that without carry permits we won't be able to tell the good guys from the bad guys you want to address that for a bit uh, ultimately, you've hit the you've hit the point well already. When you talk to the street cops, when you talk to the beat cops, the detectives, the people who deal with this every day, it's like, look, it's not that hard to tell the good guys from the bad guys. The bad guys shoot at you. Uh, the bad guys, <laughs> the bad guys out themselves, uh, and the good guys act respectfully, act normally, and act within the bounds of the law. So it's not like the the concealed carry permit is a magic good guy flag. 
because either you are and you're a compliant person uh, within the law or you aren't despite the fact that you had the permit. Permits do get revoked. People do commit crimes uh, even though they had the permit and were law abiding up to that point. It happens. So using the permitting process as some sort of good guy, bad guy litmus test just doesn't hold water at the end of the day. There are so many other indicators that they're going to have to deal with uh, anyway, the permit is not that great an indicator. It's one of those things that people watch. Well, without the permit, we won't know who's carrying lawfully or unlawfully. It's like, well, is it their gun? Is it their gun? Are they a felon? Then if, if those things are, yes, it's their gun. No, they're not a felon. They're carrying lawfully. Easy. Yeah. Well, and the other thing too, with that argument uh, and part of why it's so silly is because you don't know who's carrying lawfully and illegally anyway when people are just walking around like let's be very very clear about something the people who are carrying guns generally within the law the sort of people who will benefit from permitless carry aren't the people who are taking out their guns and shooting up supermarkets all right there that's not these people and i would buy into this law enforcement argument more if and this is something we've talked about in previous episodes i'd buy into this law enforcement argument more if felon possession was ever used more as an additional gotcha charge but it's it not is. and that's no, that's not. yeah so if someone says i'm concerned about constitutional carry because we they won't be able to tell the good guys from the bad guys the very obvious counter argument is yes they can because usually the bad guys have priors warrants are involved in crimes and interestingly an old cop friend of mine who i will uh, keep his name out of this once said to me he never took a holster off anybody he arrested Right. Which is that was one of those <laughs> moments where I was like. Fair point. I know I, I, I know that somewhere there's that guy out there who's watched wave that criminal out there who's watched wave the gun 36 times and actually carries in a holster. But, you know, as a broad sweeping generalization of the criminal class, I never took a holster off somebody I arrested. As a, as a survey says, and I, I know my law enforcement friends can probably corroborate the, uh, the lack of uh, holstering when it, when it comes to uh, <laughs> the arrestees they've had and, and the felons in possession that they've had. But that's, again, felon in possession is a drastically underused charge if they are so serious about keeping the wrong people with guns you know, off the streets. Yeah. So they underuse that charge, so it's hard to take this seriously. It's the same thing as saying like, oh, well, firearms without serial numbers are a real serious threat uh, because we can't track them. It's like, hey, they're not freaking GPS coordinates. All the guns that got walked, to, to go back to an earlier point, all the guns that walked into Mexico under Fast and Furious had serial numbers. Mm-hmm. We so don't know where we they all are. We can't find them, but the 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 tracing system that that's in place and for those of you guys who don't know a uh, atf trace a trace request if it comes in from law enforcement goes like this trace request goes manufacturer and serial number they go to the manufacturer first and go hey where did you originally ship this gun after you made it and they go oh we shipped it to bob's gun and tackle shop and, you, and then they go oh hey all right bob's gun and tackle shop did you have this gun in your possession at at one point in time, Bob's gun in tackle shop looks, opens their book, goes, yes, yes, we did. We had it on January the 1st, 2001, and we sold it to 
Bobby McBobson. It's like, okay, thanks, Bob's Gun and Tackle. And then they contact Bobby McBobson and say, hey, Bobby McBobson, what happened to this gun? He's like, well, I sold it in 2002. It didn't really work out for me. And then they go down the whole list. But ultimately, yep. most trace requests stop at the last gun store where that, that gun ended up. It becomes nearly impossible to trace it beyond that point. And so it, it just comes, it's, it's a data point. It's a data blip uh, for mm. them. And it's not going to affect the prosecutability of a crime with this weapon one way or the other. Like you either did the crime and the weapon was involved, whether it had a serial number or not, or you don't have evidence that this weapon was involved in the crime, whether there was a serial number or not. So tracing where it came from is not as useful a tool as people make it out to be. And one of the uh, points from my home state here in Michigan that comes up a lot is we have a pistol database. Every pistol with a serial number has to be registered yeah. in, the, in the state of Michigan. And the most functionality that database is utilized for is returning stolen firearms. And it isn't used that often successfully for that. So we have this giant ill-kept database of pistol serial numbers in the state of Michigan, and it gets used sometimes to try and see where guns came from, but mo it, its most common usage is return a stolen firearm, and firearms are reported stolen, so that serial number, as long as the owner remembered it, as long as the owner had it, which you should, at least for yeah. insurance purposes, if nothing else, you should write those down write your serial numbers down because making a claim and saying, hey, I had this uh, is a lot easier if you know all that information. But when you make a uh, stolen firearms report, you give them the serial number. So it's going to be, it's already going to be in the, the database of, hey, this is missing. Uh, but they'll check the uh, police database too to see who is the last registered owner of a pistol here in the state. But tracing is this, tracing is this magic thing that they love to, wave around and and say oh this this is absolutely you know we need this and mm -hmm. ccw's firearm permits are this again this magic thing they like to wave around that says well it definitely shows the good guy from the bad guy it's like, no it showed who paid who paid you for the permit who wasn't a felon yeah pretty much it was who passed this checkbox and again the the, the, the thing I want to leave you guys with before we wrap up on this episode is with constitutional carry, especially bad guys were carrying guns before we had carry permits. Bad guys were carrying guns when we had carry permits and bad guys will be carrying guns even if we go to 50 state constitutional carry because they don't care. About, the bad guys aren't the guys getting carry permits. All right. So they never cared. Of, yeah, they never, they, they never cared. They haven't cared. They haven't carried since Tombstone, and when they banned carry in the city of Tombstone, they still carried their freaking guns in there and got shot for it. But the point to this is, is that constitutional carry enables law-abiding gun owners to carry a gun for personal protection in the places where they might actually need it without having to go through the often capricious and uh, sometimes difficult or financially difficult to manage carry systems that, like, 
it's, is it easy to get a permit in South Dakota? Yes. Is it difficult to get a permit in other states? Yes, we've talked about this. Constitutional carry is good for law-abiding gun owners, and it does nothing to additionally endanger law enforcement. Just look at the 19 states that have passed it already. If, if all the states that are like, once Texas passes it, it'll be 20 or, or 21. We're, we're up to that point now. If the number of other states that are looking at it, we're, we're looking at like 23, 25, 26 at this point. Look, if at, if at this juncture, we haven't seen a significant shift in the risks to law enforcement, we're not going to see it. This isn't a critical factor. It hasn't been in Vermont, and it hasn't been in all 20 states that have joined Vermont. So, yep. All right, guys. It's, so it's here, here are your takeaways for this week. Oh, you got something? Nope. Go ahead. Okay. Takeaways for this week. Contact your friggin' senators. Oppose the nomination of David Chipman. All right. He says that wasn't him in the picture at Waco. Do I believe him? Eh, no. Um, <laughs> but... You know, it's not like uh, it's not like he someone would lie under oath to a federal committee or anything like that. Never happened. But not even never, once. not once. But so contact your senators, oppose the nomination of David Chipman. And if people, if you're that gun guy and your friends ask you about constitutional carry, represent it to them in the terms of removing a barrier to entry for people who need to carry a gun but may not have the financial means or the time to go through their state's permitting process. And uh, one last thing, frames and receivers, guys, yes. regulation.gov, write, write that out, write that comment to the ATF, oppose the definition change of frames and receivers. It's too vague. It's not in black and white. It's not helping dealers out there. We, we addressed it in the episode talking about it. There were some yep. good points in there. Ultimately, the proposed regulation is bad. It doesn't do what we need it to do. It yeah, doesn't. Do you want to brush up? On those talking points, go back and listen to episode two, I think is what is the one where we talked about that. And we'll go over and you'll be able to brush up on all your talking points. All right, guys, that is it for me. I am out. Keith, we'll see you guys next week. Later.